we actually said, you know what, we can continue doing this until we solve safety and security for the industry. So what we've done is we built a very basic algorithm that would mimic our decision-making when we're screening guests, right? What's up, everybody? My name's Mike Shogren here with my co-host, Emmanuel Pani. We're part of a group of specialized real estate investors you've probably never heard of. We didn't start with deep pockets or wealthy families, and we don't rely on 401ks, mutual funds, or traditional real estate investing. In fact, many of us don't even own the properties that fund our freedom. If you ask the money experts out there, they'd say what we do is impossible, yet it's happening every single day. It's happening through a new niche called short-term rentals. We are Short-Term Rental Nation, and these are our secrets. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Short-Term Rental Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Shogren, here with my main man and co-host, Mr. Emmanuel Pani. What's going on, E? What's up, brother? How are you today? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm fired up. We've had a couple uh, badass guests so far today, and we've got another one lined up that I am super excited to bring on, uh, wealth yeah. of knowledge in this industry. So, I am, I am excited. It, it kinda, it's very funny because it brings out your own insecurities, right? Because now we're getting guests that are like, they've done some cool shit and they've done some big things. So I'm just like, who am I to interview somebody? Like our last guy said made like $9 million worth of revenue on, on Airbnb, right? I'm like, I don't know. Am I qualified to do this? Like, did Mike, like, did Mike know what we were doing? Like, did Mike know what we we're going to be up to? But you know what I mean? It's just, I, I love it. And I'm a student for life, right? So oh, from our last couple of guests, I've taken so many notes. Um, so I'm really excited to, because Anton, our, our next guest, right? He has, they all have their own unique kind of like perspective and that's what i love about our industry is that you see so many people really thrive coming from so many different walks of life yeah yeah for sure so uh quick funny backstory anton and i met uh but a little over a year ago down at a mastermind event in puerto rico <laughs> and uh first time we met I, I don't know i think he got in at like three o'clock in the morning or something and i was you know kind of the little guy on the island like helping run the event in the back and whatever and just taking lots of notes and uh, I was going around making sure everybody was up <laughs> and I woke Anton up and uh, he was so pissed. He's like, dude, I just got three hours of sleep. I'm going to miss the first session. I'm like, nah, man, you don't want to do that. And long story short, it was, it was pretty funny the way we met and uh, we ended up connecting over the next, whatever it was, four or five days down there. And, um, you know, I was just so impressed with, with what he had built and what he's currently building. And uh, I'm, I'm super grateful that he's on the show. So, uh, Anton, he started his professional hosting career when he was traveling around the world and renting his apartment on Airbnb. Uh, he brings a tech background. So we started building tools to optimize his listings, which turned into a property management company with over 200 properties at its peak. Uh, realizing the need for trust and safety within the space, uh, he's now helping the largest companies in the world protect their assets, validate their guests, and reduce fraud through a company that he founded called AutoHost. So, Welcome to the show, Anton. Thanks for being here with us, man. Why don't you give the listeners a little bit more about your background? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, awesome to finally reconnect. Uh, we met last time under different circumstances, I think, right? Are you yeah. like Puerto Rico? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so that, that's awesome. I made, made a lot of uh, good friends and uh, made a lot of good industry contacts from that and uh, really managed to get a good group. And there's a lot of uh, knowledge that's being transferred even today, day to day, which is amazing. Um, yeah, so I actually built a property management company, started by total fluke. We uh, had a, my wife and I had a marketing agency. We worked with a bunch of different companies, different startups, 
and we were renting our apartment on Airbnb. I started building a, different automation tools and different things to streamline the operations, things like self-check-in and a little bit of cleaning and turnover management, simple things. And then we started growing that by when we came back, we saw that this apartment was making like $5,000 and $2,000 of rent. So we're like, oh, what is this? If we scale this to 100 properties, uh, we're going to be millionaires in a year. And that turned out to be a lot more difficult than I expected. Um, and along <laughs> the way, we hit a bunch of issues, regulation, uh, scaling, different business models, different structures. And we eventually managed uh, over 200 properties uh, at its peak. And now we pivoted that business towards a software business, towards a trust and safety uh, product for hospitality. We're one of the largest vendors in the space. Uh, we're doing behavioral analysis, answering the two questions that are very important, which is who is the guest that's coming inside and are they coming for the intended purpose that they're stating? And mm -hmm. in the past couple of months, we've seen a lot of success with uh, specifically in this in the short-term rental space where a lot of the business has moved towards mid-term, long-term rentals. And on the daily rentals, it was left open for abuse. And we've seen an increase in parties and events and um, different people creating, not abiding by regulatory rules, turning um, short-term rentals into party houses or trying to turn them into party houses and crazy things. Like I have a handful of these stories. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things I want to want to cover on this episode, because again, I, you've got such a diverse background. So first I kind of want to back it up to you starting your, your management company, right? Co-hosting business. Um, and how you started to generate additional leads and then how that, how that business kind of evolved, right? As, as you mentioned, right, you run into challenges and all sorts of scaling issues. So why don't you take us back? Okay. So you got that first one. Then what was the next one that you went out and got from like a pure management standpoint? Yeah. So at the beginning when we started, we were going after the master lease model and the rerun model um, because it was just easy. And we went after owners who would be receptive to that idea, right? At the beginning when we started uh, 2015, I think early 2015, um, it was the new thing and a lot of people didn't fully understand what it meant or didn't know and didn't have positive or negative connotations. They were just like, oh, you're going to be making money with my property type of a thing. I'm not interested in that or I am interested in that as long as you take the liability away from me. Uh, so what we've done is our first ever apartment was our own and the second apartment was one that we rented again and just to have a place to live and then we left <laughs> and then we left again so we were renting it out on airbnb and the third one actually kick-started the business which was a friend of ours and he had a unit in a building that allowed for short-term rentals we took it over furnished it and that kind of kick-started the business from there on we built a referral network and networked with real estate agents um, as well as try to identify buildings that allow for short-term rental activity in their declaration. So we operate in Toronto where we have uh, the majority of our inventory is condo buildings, HOAs, and who have HOAs. And those often don't uh, permit a daily rental activity, right? So the biggest challenge was to identify the buildings that do allow that and then going and acquiring leases in those. Uh, then we realized that the business is capital intensive on the master lease model and the buyback period on uh, furniture at the beginning when we started, it was six months. And throughout the years, I think after a year, year and a half, when it became a little bit more popular, the buyback period on furniture uh, became about two years. 
right? So we realized that it wasn't sustainable to continue that route. We ended up with a management model. And on the management model, we built a referral network as well as um, we built a, a, a way for us to acquire more leads via our existing clients, right? And that kind of had a ripple effect on that, that people were referring others to us, and that's how we organically grew, which was, I, I found it to be fascinating that I think we built a website, a company website, when we had like 50 or 60 units. That is, that is when we actually build a website. So now I, I see this trend of property managers uh, going with direct booking websites where they have like three or four properties and they're building their brand and things like that instead of focusing on what's important, which is growing their inventory, right? Mm. And increasing that revenue. Like building your website is not going to increase your revenue. Let's, let, let's just be real. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I think, I think you should say that one more time, just in case somebody's listening to this podcast yeah. and now we're like midway through the like 10, 12 episodes. And they're maybe still thinking, my business card doesn't feel quite right. You know what I mean? Like when they're still having those kind of thoughts, you know? Yeah, the, the most common thing I hear about uh, right now in particular is this get rid of OTAs or bypass the OTAs or build your own website for direct bookings and things like that. And that's just impossible. We recently released a blog post and we interviewed one of my friends who's a digital marketer and he was the head of uh, digital marketing for Expedia. And he managed like... Uh, $10 million budget, uh, marketing budget. And I actually approached him and I said, listen, uh, dude, this is crazy. People are telling others to bypass the OTAs, but OTAs are essentially marketing engines, right? How are you going to compete with them on the direct booking website? Like you have three or four uh, properties and you have your direct booking website. Are you going to compete with Expedia or Airbnb on marketing? They're going to kill you, right? They don't care about their marketing spend. They just care about conversion. Uh, so focus on what's important, focus on building your uh, inventory, focus on building a value to your customers, focus on improving on the OTAs themselves, and that'll generate the most amount of value for your business. And that, that's something that I don't hear often where um, early on, and that's actually really important, and I think on our 10th apartment or so, we realized the massive opportunity that cross-channel marketing would provide to us. And we listed on Booking.com and on, onto Expedia. And we were always the first ones within our market to implement new innovation. So when everyone was just on Airbnb, and let's just take uh, the Airbnb inventory in Toronto was 10,000 units. The Expedia inventory in Toronto at that point was 50 units, right? So we listed on Expedia. Then when the Expedia inventory moved from 50 units to, let's say, 2,000 units, then we had to master promotions on Expedia, right? So we started creating promotions on Expedia and really leveraged all the marketing tools that they had to kind of stay on top of the listing results and the listing searches. When that, when others and when our competitors uh, have started doing that, we actually built a brand. After we built a brand, we actually built, started building loyalty. And then we actually built uh, different types of marketing and promotions where we started promoting and giving extended uh, extended promotions to travelers coming in from Japan or coming in from Germany or from Denmark or from Europe where we knew that the average stay is going to be longer. Therefore, uh, paying Expedia additional money for promotion would make sense for us, right? And we're always on top of that game and that allowed us to constantly innovate and really make a difference, right? Um, things that we didn't do is we tried to, uh, we, we didn't try to, focus on the small details, like changing your listing description or 
optimizing titles or pictures and things like that on Airbnb because it wasn't really relevant. It wasn't a good use of our time. And this so you're really looking for the scale. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, so this is, I was super excited to have Anton on because he just brings like such a solid business mindset to it where I think a lot of people, um, they love the hospitality, but like really understanding business fundamentals, like basic market understanding. Okay, there's 10,000 units on Airbnb. There's 50 on Expedia. Why don't I try and dominate Expedia for the exposure? And I, I give Anton credit for expanding my thinking because when we met, I think I was only on Airbnb and he was like, dude, you got, you got to go wider. And, uh, he, he pushed me outside of my comfort zone and got at me on, you know, booking.com and a bunch of other platforms and really leveled my business up just from, you know, expanding my thinking and getting out of my comfort zone, quite frankly. I actually, I, I have a good analogy for this is that I refer when you're just on Airbnb, you're an Airbnb host and you're doing this as a part-time business. When you're growing outside of Airbnb, you become a hospitality operator, right? And once you actually manage an entire real estate asset, you become a hotel operator. That's, that's what you are, right? So yes. figuring this out and figuring out the distribution is, in my opinion, is a key um, milestone for you to becoming like a, closer to a hotelier rather than anything else, right? Being just on Airbnb, look, the distribution right now, I know this from Motohost and I know, I know this from working with the largest clients in, in the world, really largest operators in the world, their Airbnb distribution could be as high as 30%, right? They're making their revenues from everywhere else, right? They're relying less and less on Airbnb. There's multiple factors that control taxes, regulation, a bunch of different issues, and they rely on other OTAs for that as well as their direct booking websites. But that's because their brands are established already and they have uh, national wide coverage, right? Uh, when Mike is looking to stay at, uh, at, at a company, of, sorry, at a location in New York, and you've had a good experience staying in one brand in Boston, you're probably going to go and seek that out in New York, right? Which is why the Hilton works and the Marriott works. And that's the brand, uh, the brand effect that you're getting. Mm. Yeah, I love that. So um, you, you did touch on a lot of things, right? One of the things that you kind of pass over really fast towards the beginning was the fact that you had some kind of like referral network and some kind of like incentives. Did you have incentive for referrals? So a lot of our, our, our listeners are kind of in the beginning of like, how do I get more people coming in? Can you, can you touch on, on what that referral kind of like infrastructure kind of looks like and what? Sure. Yeah, hundred percent. So I, I, I'm actually going to explain this in a little bit of a better sales perspective rather than just give you, give a number, uh, cause mm -hmm. that's less relevant. Perfect. Um, put yourself in the position of a business, any business that is acquiring clients, you're going to have customer acquisition costs, right? Uh, CAC. Um, and you need to bake that cost into your, uh, structure, right? Into your growth structure. So, at the beginning when I was just the only one selling and I was the only one who is acquiring inventory, right? We essentially didn't have any cost structure associated with that because I was the only one, I wasn't paying myself commission, obviously, right? Of course. So once you change that, once you pivot that, your business changes as well and everything becomes more expensive. So that is incredibly important. So what we were going for and the metric that we were optimizing for, which was wrong, um, which was wrong. I know that I know now that it's wrong, but it wasn't wrong at the time because I didn't know any better. Was optimizing for the amount of units that we were getting, right? And our KPI that we were going for the company-wise is how many units do I have, right? 
not profitability of units, not revenue opportunity, not the type of unit that we're making the, the most amount of money. We were going just for any unit. And that's how we were going to, uh, to grow really quickly, which proved to be correct at the time because what we needed to do in order to scale the business was to um, increase our revenue as well as increase our turnover rate so that we have a better negotiating power with our cleaning vendors and with everyone else so that we could list everywhere, right? So that we could list on booking.com and on Expedia because if you come to Expedia with uh, four properties, they wouldn't even accept you, right? But if you come to Expedia with 20 properties, they're like, yeah, I can talk to you, right? And you also have negotiating power with the cleaning vendors, uh, with your other channels and so forth. Now, regarding the actual compensation model, um, at the beginning, we paid. Uh, we we had different types of compensation models, <laughs> and I tried a I tried a bunch of stuff. And we, I think the one that prevailed and worked the best was to pay a five hundred dollar referral fee on top of anything that the real estate agent would get. And we worked with the real estate agents because they're um, holding, they're close to the inventory um, inventory suppliers, right? They're close to the actual inventory. And that proved to be really well. So if there was a real estate agent that was uh, renting a unit long-term, then we would approach a real estate agent and we say, yeah, you'll make your one month commission as well as you will pay you an extra $500 on top, right? Or we actually created this uh, program where if you're a realtor, we will help you with the analysis of how much your client can make using short-term rentals, and therefore you'll be able to sell real estate investments, right? And the lucrative way there was, at the time it was lucrative and we could actually prove it, is that if you are going to go and make this investment in short-term rentals and buying a condo build, uh, buying a condo unit, your long-term rent, tenant rent would be 4% cap rate. If you would operate it with us and you allow us to manage it, you would make six, seven, 8% cap rate, which was a lot more lucrative, right? And we had all the finances and uh, the models to back that up, which was a key differentiator. And basically, any real estate, any real estate uh, investor that we spoke with that was qualified real estate investor, this would be a very lucrative model for them because it was a way for them to differentiate their investments. And that proved to work significantly well, particularly if we hit like uh, you know a, a shark or a whale that had a ton of money to buy a bunch of properties or one mm -hmm. or two. And that worked really, really well. And actually, that 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 is the best type of growth that we've had because once we provided value to one client, he started referring others who kept on buying with us. And we had deals with real estate agents where we get a commission kickback on the purchase. So we also turned into this uh, virtual real estate agency where we would get a commission from the sale and then we would make a commission from the management and we would make a commission from the furnishing and from a bunch of other things. So we kind of made money from everywhere. Yeah. And this this is again for for our for our listeners. If you're paying attention, you'll keep seeing this trend now, right? The the value of Airbnb is is that there they there's possibility for vertically vertically integrating your business, right? So there is ways for you to get kickbacks or things from everywhere. So you're creating this business that is more like an octopus, right? That has a ton of different ways that it makes money. Um, which is different than a traditional rental, right? Because once you charge a pet fee or whatever else you're going to charge, you're kind of limited in in that sense. There is a caveat there that I want to uh, emphasize that I, I realized uh, once we matured more in business, and particularly in this business, is that we our, our company had 11 revenue streams, right? We were making money from 11 things. Um, and it, it sounds nice and impressive, but when you're, a small company, you really lose, lose focus. 
And you can't really manage all those revenue streams efficiently. Um, and I'll just put this into an example. So we were making money from the management. We we're making money from cleaning. We we're making money from insurance or security packages, what we've called it. Uh, we made money from cable and TV that we we're upselling to our owners. Um, and we we're making money from a bunch of different things. And then combining that with multiple business models like management model and uh, master lease model, it becomes an accounting clusterfuck. And mm. that was the basically the pitfall of the business where our accounting was such a mess because we we're generating tons of money, but we had no idea how much it was actually costing down the line. And, you know, when everything is great and money is flowing in, you don't really care about the bottom line. But when things like places, economic downturns like Corona hit you all of a sudden, you're like, oh, my God, what the hell is happening? And the revenue stops coming in and you can't leverage that. Uh, to borrow more, then you just lost the, the biggest advantage that you've had, right? Which is your uh, revenue generating ability. So you got to be super careful there, really pinpoint to what your business model is, focus on profitability, which I think a lot of this is missing. Like when we're hearing on the news that Sonder has went and raised $200 million, right? Well, are they really, uh, are, are, is this a good sustainable business, right? And then you go back to WeWork and everything starts to crumble. Yeah, I love that. So now just talking before we transition to auto host, one thing I, I just want to have you kind of articulate is how your business evolved from an infrastructure systems process to kind of taking you and your wife out of the business into working on the business and then onto auto host. Yeah, um, we made a few, a few key hires um, early on. And the first thing that was day to day consuming was communications. And we realized that our biggest advantage is that we're able to communicate clearly and manage communications with guests, um, which generates good reviews at the end, which generates better revenue and better opportunities, right? So the first hires that we've, that we've done were um, customer service uh, manager, like a guest support manager, right, to, for the guest support team. And from that, we realized that after we scaled that it was very, very difficult to just have one person. So we had to in increase that team and we hired a bunch of VAs, right? Um, and then we realized that, you know what, with all those VAs, you need people on the ground. So we hired operations people and we also had a marketing team and our marketing manager, she was responsible for essentially distribution across multiple platforms. And that, that proved to uh, be some it was a really good payoff because every time there was something new to experiment with, our marketing manager was able to be on top of that, right? Whether it's a new type of promotion that's set up on any one of those OTAs, uh, Black Friday promotion or whatever, or New Year's Eve promotion, that we constantly have it running and maintained. And that provided a competitive advantage over anyone else who isn't on top of that, right? That is also a part of the reason why we were able to um, learn so much and so quickly because we're able to experiment so much, right? And we know what works, what doesn't work. And that's why I'm relatively versed in everything, in, in the possibilities because I was just experimenting so much throughout the years. Mm. That's awesome. When you say experimenting, right? Like how, how long would you, would you do something for? Like what yeah, was so your... A, yeah, so there was an unmeasured and a measured experiment, right? Um, and experimenting could have been just shooting in the dark and trying to figure out if it works or not. Um, and some of them were easy to measure. Some of them were, were much harder to measure. For example, uh, the one thing that I, I really hate is that it's very difficult to measure the performance of um, ads. 
like uh, of advertising spend as well as ad- as well as ads. Like I have no idea if I got um, extra revenue because I was running this type of a promotion or this type of a promotion because the information is incredibly fragmented, right? What mm-hmm. I did see is that if I targeted Japanese travelers, I'm using Japanese travelers because they account for like 2% of travel in Toronto. So it's really easy to quantify. And all of a sudden I see that we're above the 2% average, right? We're like at 5% average at some point. I know that targeting Japanese uh, travelers works, right? And I know that their average stay is double than what it is for everyone else, right? Um, so there wasn't really a timed experiment. It was more of uh, I have a hunch and this is what we're going to try. And let's see if we actually see results down the line, right? Hmm. And as long as we can fill the units, we were able to fill the units and keep up with uh, demand uh, or keep up with uh, supply and competition and everything else, then it proved to work well. Yeah. You remind me of like a, a Airbnb Tim Ferriss. It's kind of like this this vibe that I'm getting off of you that like you have this little notebook somewhere that you have like all of this crazy amounts of like information on it and you're like oh I don't fucking know I'm gonna try this right now like I don't yeah. like I'm thinking to myself I'm like I've been in my market for like 10 years I have no idea what percentage of people come from here but that's such a good way of like thinking outside the box of like okay I know Japanese travelers are this much I know they stay twice as long so if I'm going try a long-term promotion, especially now with what's happening with COVID, right? Like if you have to like kind of transition your business out of those shorter term into this like medium, longer term leases is like who, who would actually come, right? And like really understanding your customer from the data perspective, it's, 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 it's completely different. Like I've never looked at it that way. Having that insight, by the way, is probably going to be the difference between um, a, a very, very successful business and staying a small business, right? That's just what it is because I've learned this now through AutoHost and setting up compensation packages for sales and performance and uh, success and customer success and all this and business success. Um, it, it's very important to figure out what you're um, actually measuring and what is important for the business and what isn't important for the business, right? And probably iterate over that. Uh, so, like I said at the beginning, we thought that what was important was the number of units. Um, at the end of the day. Um, after three years of doing it, I realized that it wasn't the most important part. The most important part was profitability uh, and unit economics, right? And now that we've done an analysis post-corona of which units should we drop, well, there were uh, units that we should have dropped three years ago, right? They were literally losing us money um, 12 months of the year, and it was like maybe one month of the year that it was actually profitable. It provided zero value to uh, to the bottom line of the business. And from an operations perspective, every unit that we added was more costly to operate. If it's not making you money, then it's probably losing you money somewhere, right? Um, even if it's breaking even, then just one call that you need to dispatch to that unit is losing you money. I'd rather keep that person at home. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah for absolutely. sure. So let's let's transition a little bit here to your most recent venture. What What kind of inspired you to start this i mean i have an idea because we've spoken a bunch but for the listeners like what led you down this path to founding autohost yeah sure so actually autohost has a very interesting story autohost started as a cleaning automation company where every time a reservation came in we would automatically book a cleaner the reason why we did this is because we got tired of google sheets and we couldn't keep track if our cleaners and our outsource cleaners knew where they should go and clean. 
So we actually, I have a tech background. I've been working uh, with startups and technology for a really long time. And one of my best friends, he's uh, one of the best engineers ever. And so I got him. I'm like, hey, dude, like we have this problem. We need to solve it, right? Uh, so it started as an operations management uh, tool set. And that allowed us to scale our management business, right? Um, we tried to sell it. Uh, it was difficult to sell it. No, selling cleaning isn't sexy. <laughs> Think selling cleaning automation isn't sexy, and that's an issue. But throughout, throughout, we built a bunch of automation tools for AutoHost, right, or what we called AutoHost back then. And one of those things was uh, information collection, which was a guest portal type of a way and a verification system, and uh, automated some SMS and communications and things like that. We built an integration into Intercom because our existing PMS that we were using at that time didn't have good messaging capabilities. So we used Intercom, which is a platform to communicate with guests, and it supported. Uh, we built an SMS extension to that, and all of that tech expansion kind of ended when we've had a series of very unfortunate incidents where really bad people took advantage of our units and they smuggled weapons, um, drugs, escorts through our units. And we actually realized that we were hit by a targeted attack on our brand. And that cost us something like $40,000 during uh, December. And that was a significant hit for our business. And that almost crippled us. And we actually said, you know what, we can continue doing this until we solve safety and security for the industry. So what we've done is we built a very basic algorithm that would mimic our decision making when we're screening guests, right? What we consider to be a risky guest. Well, a one night reservation from, let's say, booking.com. And it was a one person on the booking and a 10 person occupancy. And they're trying to create urgency. We're like, yeah, that's a risky reservation, right? So we built this way to signal this to our team. Instead of creating SLPs, we basically created this algorithm. And that was the first uh, thing that we've ever done for AutoHost. And then we actually built a way to collect and verify information. And we added a bunch of modules towards that. And like ID verification and credit card deposit and things like that. And we tied that down to our risk algorithm. And the basic premise of AutoHost is that no... Um, it's a behavioral analysis system so that we're trying to predict if the guest is a good guest, a bad guest, or somebody that requires more verification, and they would go through a dedicated funnel that would collect less information or more information based on the risk. So just to put things into it as an example, if you're a last-minute booking and all of a sudden you hit our portal, we've identified that you're behind uh, hacking tools or masking tools or VPNs or proxies or trying to mask your identity, we would bump your score and we would collect additional information from you. We would collect your security deposit from you, your ID, we would verify your phone number. If required, then we can do a background check and a bunch of uh, things like that. And you would eventually go through about 20 screens or so. However, if you're a low-risk guest and you have the characteristics of being a low-risk guest, right? and you're coming in from overseas and your reservation matches what a low-risk reservation would look like and it's a long enough time in advance, then you wouldn't need to provide us with your ID and credit card and a bunch of invasive information like this. You can just zip through the process. And that just caught on and now we're serving uh, hundreds of thousands of reservations, working with large brands in the space, uh, short-term rentals, uh, hotels, and so forth. Mm, I love that, man. And that first off, magical. congrats and kudos yeah. to you guys because it was definitely needed. And that was the first lesson that I learned after expanding, especially expanding off of Airbnb into some of the other 
channels where, you know, you got to take on a little bit more responsibility. And I just found that a lot of the guests, I just had so many issues with payments and IDs. I was like, Jesus, like, why is this so difficult? Um, and then you release that tool. So it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Simple. Yeah, yeah it's, it's incredibly fragmented, right? And every company has different SOPs and different process, and it's, it's, it's such a mess to deal with it, really. Uh, what we're doing is that we're de-risking everything, and we have a security approach to it. Our co-founder and CTO is a cybersecurity expert, so, and so we're combining the cybersecurity expertise with our hospitality expertise to really build the, the best-in-class trust and safety platform for the space. Mm. So are you guys for, so who is your end user? Like are, are your, the, are the big companies your end user? Are the little guys your end user? Or like who, who are you guys, like who should use you guys? Like I have, I'm, I have a feeling after what you said everybody, right? But like right now, who's, who's using yeah. you guys? So we, we are uh, targeting anyone who has um, a lot of properties and a high turnover. So usually that accounts to being about 50 properties or more. That's kind of just, a random a, a random number um mm -hmm. at 50 properties you already need a team you already have a lot of reservations you have a lot of units you have a lot of fragmentation you probably have some business experience and some business tools right uh that's when things really start to break right uh so and, and then when you move scale up and up and up and up it's incredibly difficult to scale your trust and safety process and scale your trust and safety procedures without having a system in place of some sort right and I've encountered uh, throughout Selling Autohost different types of solutions that people crafted, which are pretty neat. They just don't fucking work, right? Um, <laughs> like they just get abused. And and the nature of the nature of fraud is that all it takes is just one incident for or one uh, one, one exploit or one uh, flaw in your business process. And these people will just attack you over and over and over again until they fully exploit you, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So you're constantly playing this cat and mouse game. And the advantage of us as a company is that we're exposed to so much. We have so much exposure in the space and within regions that we see all types of fraud. And then if you have a fraud in Florida, well, or different types of fraud in Florida, you can expect Mike to have that same type of fraud in Boston within a couple of days, weeks, months, right? Mm -hmm. So we oh, can be sure. proactive, educating him and releasing a, a patch or an update uh, telling Mike, hey, listen, you're going to expect this problem, right? And here's what you should do about it. And those are the types of clients that we're targeting. It's the ones that are growing really quickly, have a lot of reservations, and really want to scale their um, operations team, uh, sorry, their customer service team without scaling their trust and safety team. And what we find is it's really difficult. So when you have a customer service team, and I guess support team that manages guests, you're drilling into their head. Customer service, customer service is the best. Customer service, build the brand, customer service. But hold on a second. There's also fraud, right? <laughs> it's like, it's really difficult for a VA, particularly overseas, to make that mind switch between customer service to security, right? Because hold on a second. Here you're drilling them to be a security, uh, sorry, a customer service oriented person. And all of a sudden, you're also teaching them to be skeptical, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's counterintuitive a little bit. So we're solving yeah. that. We're solving that fragmentation and we're providing basically a set of analysis uh, that you can make a very, very simple decision based on that, based on those tests. Could we give a little context, Anton? Because I remember when we were talking in Puerto Rico and you were, you were sharing with me like numbers on, as an example, some of the credit card fraud stuff that like impacted your business. And I was like, Jesus, like it was 
it was a significant amount. So I guess to like put it in context, like what would that quote unquote scheme look like? Like, how does that work? Yeah, hundred percent. I actually have a lot more insight uh, now, uh, a year after, <laughs> a year sure. after, and managing and seeing so much, so much uh, data and so much info. Uh, so, according to the Certified uh, Association of Fraud Examiners, fraud in hospitality accounts about five to six percent. Right, that wow. is a huge number. They've taken the entire hospitality segment, hotels, airlines, and restaurants, and that means a one in twenty reservations is a fraudulent transaction. Now. That includes friendly fraud, and friendly fraud is when uh, chargeback is a friendly fraud. Like it's you is you, but you're just doing a, a chargeback. That's called friendly fraud. I would not describe it as a friendly fraud. Yeah, like chargebacks well, are it, annoying as fuck. It should be annoying, completely, annoying, completely annoying fraud. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's completely but, annoying. But it, yeah. it, it's called it's called friendly fraud for yeah. a lack of uh, other words. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> but then you have the stolen credit cards, right? Uh, which are also in this five to six percent stolen credit cards, stolen identities, and things like that. Um, hotels on the chargeback rate, hotels have on average about 3% of chargebacks, right? So you're talking about a big, big, big number here. Um, big companies, Marriott's and so forth, they actually have, um, I think they released uh, numbers that they're spending like seven, $70 million on training for uh, trafficking, any types of trafficking for employee tra- uh for training their employees to spot traffickers, right? Wow. You're talking about significant money here uh, coming in from these brands. You would need to ask yourself, well, how big is this issue, right? Like how big are those incidents? From our experience, it depends on the property management company. It can be anywhere from two to about 5% on incident rate, right? From their revenues. And if you're uh, a company that has no process and you're at a, uh, lower end market and your ADRs are relatively low and like a three-star hotel type of a thing, it can even be higher than that, right? So it's really common. It's very frequent. And if you're thinking about it from a criminal perspective, well, what is the easiest way to smuggle drugs, right? What am I going to do it from my home where I have a lease on? No, I'm going to go and rent an Airbnb under stolen credentials and just do a drug deal from there. It's the easiest way to go through, right? And same goes with the worst of the worst of the frauds, like the identity theft, which can result in sex, sex trafficking um, and all this bad crap that comes with it. Yeah, well, for sure. I'm kind of mind blown about the 70 million towards trafficking. Like that's not even a thing that you even, you even think about, right? But it's, it's unfortunately the reality of kind of the world that we live in. Um, it's crazy. Actually, the hotels, what they do is they have no security process, right? It's basically they're training their employees to spot bad actors, quote unquote, right? So if you come to a hotel reception, they're trained to feel you out for sketchiness. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's not quantifiable. So, like, you know, it's not quantifiable. Yeah. It's really biased, right? Um, yeah. And at the end of the day, you're, you know, minimum wage employee at a reception desk. Um, how are you going to spot like trafficking or advanced trafficking, right? It's, it's very difficult. It's not very effective. Yeah. Wow. So um, it's such an inter- interesting time now. Do you want to touch on what do you see in your own personal experience, right? You kind of, kind of talked about how you had to reevaluate some of your units. You're going to get rid of some of them. So what what is your life like as a host? Are you still hosting units? Like, Do you still have units so what is your life like as a host now 
during COVID and where do you see the, our, our industry kind of going? Yeah, I'm actually fortunate that we have a super team and I have been somewhat uh, disconnected from the property management side of things as uh, working and building Autohost. Um, but on the property management side of things, we've seen a lot of demand for midterm and long-term rentals, right? And for furnished long-term rentals, actually. So I see a big opportunity for that product of a ready-to-go furnished unit that you can just plug into and come in, roll your suitcase in, and you can live in there. Uh, so I see there's a lot of demand for that, particularly now. And if you look at the economics, like it, it just makes sense, right? Buying furniture is expensive, really expensive, like 10 grand, 12 grand, 15 grand, whatever, for a one-bedroom unit. Why would you do that? So I think the opportunity there is to build those communities, build those models, and potentially make them international, right? And if you look at Airbnb and where that where their business is moving, they also realize that. So I think what Airbnb could potentially do is essentially sell a living subscription where they would sell you a lease, a uh, one-year lease, right, for, let's say, $25,000 or $30,000 a year, and you have uh, credits or to, to live in a bunch of different places. So if you want to live in New York, in Manhattan, well within your credit limit, you know, you can get like a nice studio apartment or in Manhattan, or if you want something a little bit cheaper, you can go to Queens, right? But if you want to go down for a week and live in Baja or something, um, then you can get a big house with your friends and live there, right? And then the next week you want to rent a villa in, in Belize, then you can go there. So I think that's where the opportunity goes. Hmm. And as well as there's going to be a bunch of commercial real estate available, which I think for hospitality is a big, big factor, right? There's a, an abundance of commercial real estate. We had, um, I am looking at Toronto as a market where right before COVID hit, we were ready to sign a lease for a bigger office. And we lucked out that we actually canceled our old lease and we we're just about to sign a new lease. And then this COVID thing happened, right? And I'm looking at the leases now and almost all of these office buildings are empty, right? Mm -hmm. They're course. completely vacant. So if you have an idea on how to turn it into a better use, better use uh, facility, particularly with the hospitality, you have a big advantage there. I love that. You've given me so many things to think about. <laughs> like my, my wheels are spinning right now. I don't know if you guys can see it through my forehead or what, but my, my wheels are spinning. So oh, good. Before we uh, before we wrap up with the the last question, Anton, where can folks learn more about you and about AutoHost and how they can implement that in their business? Yeah, sure. So you can go to AutoHost.ai, um, chat with us. If you have any questions, if you have any security problems, we'll be more than happy to help you out. Um, and you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's probably the best platform uh, to to get me there. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. Anton Zilberberg on LinkedIn, you'll probably find me fairly, fairly fast. I'm the only one. <laughs> or just type autos, right? Uh, you can also go to our blog to get educated. Yeah, if you have any specific questions, again, just reach out to us. Uh, we'd be more than happy to share as much information as we can. Um, our objective is to educate the world on trust and safety and make sure that you have a safe and sustainable operation going forward. I love that. And so for some of the newer folks or even some of the smaller operators, maybe they're not at the scale yet. 
of the the 50 and maybe they're not on a bunch of platforms. Let's just say that they're on Airbnb. What would you suggest, I guess, is general screening questions to quote unquote feel out whether if this is a legit booking or not? Yeah, so we get that asked uh, quite often. And my my, my answer to this is, is, is the following. You, what you want to look for is any in, inconsistencies, right? Just inconsistencies everywhere. Like if the person is saying that they're coming in to visit their aunt, then it's very simple to say, oh, where does your aunt live, right? If they're struggling with that, well, they're probably lying, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if they're saying that they're from, if they're saying that they're coming to visit their aunt, uh, you would ask them, oh, where are you coming from, right? And they'll tell you I'm coming from Orlando, but their Airbnb profile shows that they're in Toronto. Well, that's a little, a little bit sketchy, right? And plus, if they're coming from Orlando and you're coming just for one night and it just happens to be a Saturday and it's showing that you're in Toronto, then you're probably lying about your intentions there, right? There's a bit of inconsistencies. Um, the next thing that I always recommend to do is not to be afraid to ask additional in- for additional information, right? Ask for their picture ID, meet them in person, give them a phone call, do a bunch of those things to really have the assurance that it is the person that they're claiming to be, right? And I think that's a gap that's missing is that people are really afraid of the Airbnb guidelines and the Airbnb rules in specific um, because they they try to build a, a platform that is based on trust, but it's incredibly difficult to do this at scale, right? And at the end of the day, when there's an accident, in your unit, you're the one who's impacted, not Airbnb. If you call Airbnb, they'll direct you to local authorities, right? There's nothing they can do about it. So it's your responsibility one way or the other to deal with it. So make sure that you're feeling comfortable with whoever's inside. And there are really good solutions like NoiseAware is an example where uh, I'm sure that you guys are familiar with it, where you have live monitoring, right? Um, we always try, we always ask for their real info, for their email. We always ask for their phone number. And just using a basic Google search, if you're unsure about somebody, it can yield massive results, right? I'm, I'm always amazed at how much information you can gather just with the person's phone number, for example. That's awesome. That's awesome. So the, uh, the last question that we ask all of our guests is, what is your number one secret to building a successful short-term rental business? Right now, after doing this for quite some time, I would say focus. It's mm-hmm. a focus on focus on what makes the most amount of money, what makes the most amount of sense. Um, and I can give you an example from our business, from our property management business. Our biggest money makers are two bedroom apartments. And I can be very specific here. Two bedroom apartments that are about 800 square feet that don't cost more than $3,200 in carrying costs, right? And are located in prime locations. That's as specific as I can get, right? If you're overpaying uh, for that unit and let's say you're doing, you're getting it for $4,000, then it's going to be harder to break even, right? If you're getting it for less than that, then you need to have an ROI calculator to see what is wrong with that place, right? Maybe um, it doesn't have a good view or maybe it doesn't have a good floor or something along those lines, or maybe the neighbors are don't like short-term rentals and that's going to impact your uh, profitability, right? So that's what I would really recommend is to focus and focus on profitability and unit economics. Hmm. Love that. That's money, especially the profitability part. I think a lot of the people and, and Mike and I talk about this often. I rather have 10 great properties than 25 shitty ones. Exactly. And, and you ask about compensations, right? 
Like for fuck's sake, you can't structure a compensation model if you don't have any profit. You can't. It makes no sense. It's counterintuitive, right? If a unit is not making you any money and you're going to be compensating for it, then your cost of carrying that unit and um, and acquiring that unit is greater than the potential of that unit. That's not a business, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is the pure, what Mike talked about earlier, right? Like your pure way of looking at it from a business perspective, which I mean, people would understand in every other area of life, right? If we switch Airbnb with like actually making of a physical product, They'll be like, well, if the product costs more to make than what you sell it for, you shouldn't make the product. And people get that. But then with Airbnb, for some reason, I think there is the emotional component of it. And maybe it's the hospitality component that Mike talked about. The people just don't understand. Like they don't put themselves in those shoes of like, look at it like every other business. Does it cost you more than it makes you or or not? I think a lot of people start and get into that in into ism. Uh, by accident uh, a lot of people get into that by accident right uh, like I did and a lot of people that I spoke to as well like they had a vacation cottage or something like that and then their neighbor asked them to manage it as well and then they're just going to roll over from that and build a, a management company so they become emotionally attached to this and they forget that it's a business at the end of the day um, so that, that that's an issue and as well as just pure pure education right like we until until corona Airbnb or hospitality didn't have a massive crisis. This is the first time that we're going through an existential crisis. And when we're going to get out of it, it's going to look completely different, right? I think mm -hmm. there's going to be massive changes. And if you look at the big companies, they're the ones who are driving that change. Most hotels are moving towards self-check-in, uh, contactless check-in, contactless experience, right? They're reducing their overhead. Um, if you look at companies like Lyric, uh, and I actually analyzed uh, Lyric, uh, Lyric's layoffs list, and I realized that anywhere between like 35 to 40% of their team was engineers. Well, you're an operations company, then why do you have so many engineers, right? That's, that's a lack of, lack of focus. Um, and I, I think that's where a lot of those businesses fail, where they don't really realize what is the most important part. And I've made those mistakes as well. Like I acquired a bunch of these studios that didn't make any money. That was... Uh, a pitfall. They were expensive. They were expensive to acquire. There was a lot of them. And then I actually ran an analysis on AirDNA and realized that out of, at that point, I think it was 20,000 listings on Airbnb. And you've had uh, 15,000 listings with a max occupancy of two, right? So that means that the ceiling for how much you can charge for a max occupancy of two has already been established. So your profit margin in there is going to shrink. It makes no sense. And that, those are things that you need to learn as you're moving, uh, moving and growing within your business. I love that. Beautiful. Well, awesome. thank you for coming on here, Anton. As yeah. always, man, I get so much out of our conversations. I know our listeners are, are going to get a ton. I've got another two pages of notes per usual. So I, uh, I always get a ton out of our, uh, all of our conversations. So thanks again. Yeah, man. same. We could have done, yeah, we could have done favorite. literally a Tim Ferriss kind of episodes, like a two and a half hours deep dives switch to tequila kind of kind of vibe yeah. so it would have yeah awesome maybe, maybe later maybe later on i don't think you had an ability to book like an evening session <laughs> on your calendar <laughs> yeah that's true awesome we'll, we'll think about that awesome well thanks again and uh we'll talk to you soon Bye.